0: Welcome to First Move this Friday, TGIF and the start of a quarterfinal World Cup elation for the winners, of course, for the losers, elimination, and for England fans, I'm sure it will be, yes, you guessed it, gratification, and you know I'm biased, so we'll move swiftly on. Unfortunately, it's red cards, however, for markets. U.S. stock market futures giving up gains after more inflation frustration. Just released numbers showing prices at the factory gate, the so-called producer price index rising by a greater than expected 7.4% year-over-year, that rate hotter than expected too, and the month-over-month readings as well. It's the first, in fact, of two major inflation indicators ahead of the US central bank meeting next week. And as you would expect, the market reaction is negative. Wall Street now futures firmly lower. Europe also uh, mostly, well, there's a mixed bag, as you can see there. The Zetrodaks, in fact, managing to hold half a percentage points higher. We'll discuss the market outlook, however, with famous. Investor Mark Mobius, known for his winning trades in emerging markets in particular, and more recently some bold calls on Bitcoin, crypto enthusiasts take cover. Mobius sees a further 40% crash that could take Bitcoin down to $10,000 a coin from the what? Where are we now? $17,000 per Bitcoin levels as we speak. In the meantime, Asia finishing out the week in the green. New numbers from China show a further easing. Of consumer prices over there, particularly for food. And the Hang Seng up for a second straight day, buoyed by China's moves to ease COVID restrictions. COVID cases, however, are still on the rise across China, as one would expect. Just one of a number of huge healthcare challenges worldwide, which we'll be discussing, and a brand new push to battle AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria and other diseases, with Chelsea Clinton, the vice chair of the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Health Initiative. That's coming up on the show, but first, we do start with an emotional homecoming for basketball star Brittany Griner, now back on U.S. soil after a 10-month ordeal in Russia. Griner landed in San Antonio, Texas, just a few hours ago. A U.S. official told CNN she was in good spirits and, quote, incredibly gracious. Griner had just begun serving a nine-year prison sentence in a Russian penal colony on a drug smuggling conviction. She was freed in a swap with the Russian Victor Boot, a convicted arms dealer who'd been in prison in the United States, the two of them passing, as you can see there on the airpack airport tarmac in Abu Dhabi on Thursday. Rosa Flores joins us now from San Antonio. And um, Rosa, I know you were there for when she stepped onto the tarmac in the United States. Her first three steps felt a little anticlimactic to me. I've I've watched the video a number of times, but one can only imagine what she felt at that moment.
1: You know, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you look at that video and it it seems very anticlimactic, Mm -hmm. like you said. And it really was here from the ground, because as you, as you mentioned, I was here when that plane landed. There really was no big fanfare. There was no big public spectacle welcoming Brittany Griner to the United States. It really was very simple. All that we witnessed happened here was the plane landed here at Kelly Field in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, um, the, uh, the plane uh, stopped by a hangar And a few officials boarded the plane, and then after a few minutes, literally a few minutes, they deplaned, And then Brittany Griner left the plane, got off the plane, and she walked into a hangar. And that's all that we were able to observe here from the public spaces where all of the media was. And that was it. But those were her first steps as a free American in the United States. Brittany Griner is finally home. The WNBA star landed in San Antonio early this morning after nearly 10 months detained in Russia.
2: The most important emotion that I have right now is just sincere gratitude.
1: Griner is returning home to her family, teammates and a lesion of supportive fans.
2: We
3: love you and we are here for you. Uh, we know that the journey that she has just experienced was a very difficult one, but we're here to walk with her step by step.
1: The Biden administration secured Griner's release in a high-stakes prisoner swap with arms dealer Victor Boot after months of negotiations.
4: I'm proud that today we had made one more family whole again. So welcome home, Brittany.
1: Greiner is seen here leaving Russian detention, boarding a plane, given her passport and realizing she is heading home.
5: Are you ready for um, flight? Uh, yes, yes.
1: The swap took place in Abu Dhabi, where the two were seen passing each other on the tarmac. The WNBA star was detained in Russia back in February after cannabis oil was found in her suitcase at an airport in the Moscow region. She was sentenced to nine years in prison in early August and was moved to a penal colony in mid-November after losing her appeal. Paul Whelan, another American detained in Russia, was notably left out of the exchange. The Biden administration has come under fire for not securing his release.
5: This was not a choice of which American to bring home. The choice was one or none.
1: A senior administration official tells CNN the Biden administration has ideas for new forms of offers they are going to try with Russia in an effort to bring Whelan home. President Biden spoke to Whelan's sister
6: on Thursday. There are a lot of people moaning and groaning about Victor Boot going uh, back to Russia. But I've got to say, uh, it's an amazing thing to be able to get Brittany back. So I would urge everyone to, uh, you know, to keep their partisan sniping out of it. CNN spoke by phone with Whelan.
7: I would say that if um,
4: a message could go to President Biden that, uh, you know, this is a precarious situation that needs to be resolved quickly.
1: And now, uh, Julia. The other obvious question here, of course, is what happens next? What happens with Brittany Griner? And while U.S. officials are not saying exactly what's going to happen and give us a play-by-play of what her day is going to be like today, they do say that that she is going to a medical facility to get a medical evaluation. And as you know, just a few months ago, Trevor Reed went through this very same experience. He actually landed here at Kelly Field in San Antonio, Texas, and he was offered the opportunity for a program by the DOD that helps Uh, not just military people, but also civilians reintegrate into society after an isolation event, in this case, being detained in a foreign prison. And Trevor Reed's family telling CNN that they recommend for Brittany Griner to do this and for the process to be at her pace, because, of course, this is different for everybody. And of course, it's different for Trevor Reed. It's going to be different for for Brittany Griner. But the point here is that there is care that is here in the United States. The, the, the U.S. welcoming um, Brittany Griner with open arms and resources so that she can be an, a free American here on U.S. soil and hopefully get back to her family soon.
0: Yeah. Julia. And for now, safely back home. Rosa Flores, thank you so much for that. Okay, now to China, where a temporary shortage of anti-epidemic drugs is reported. The country now bracing for a potential surge of COVID cases as it slowly moves away from the zero-COVID policy. This comes after angry protests erupted across the nation against the strict government restrictions. And the world has been able to see the rare images despite China's great firewall censorship, thanks to one Chinese artist in Italy in particular. And our Wang got to speak to him. Video after
2: video of historic anti-zero COVID protests in China broadcast on the world's television screens everywhere but inside China where authorities censored all evidence of the protests. So how did these images manage to get beyond China's controlled internet? Newsrooms around the world, including CNN, have been relying on information from this Twitter account. And there's only one man behind it. Li, a Chinese painter in Italy, whose identity we're hiding for security reasons. This account may become a symbol that Chinese people are still pursuing freedom of speech. When you post something within China, it will quickly disappear. This account can document all these historical events that cannot be saved inside the country. His account quickly turned into one of the world's key sources for protest information. Lee says he received thousands of submissions per day as the demonstrations unfolded. Apps like Twitter, YouTube and Instagram are banned in China. But people used virtual private networks or VPNs, which are prohibited in China, to access Twitter and send their videos to Lee. What's the motivation behind all the work you do? It's to let people inside of China climb out of the Great Firewall to see what's happening at this very moment. But that's exactly what authorities want to prevent. Here's what happens if you search for information about any of the protests on Chinese social media. You get a notice that says, sorry, no relevant results are found. Meanwhile, on Li's Twitter account, he was rapidly uploading videos of demonstrations across China, from Arunqi, Nanjing, Chengdu, to Shanghai, where protesters chanted for Xi Jinping to step down, calling for freedom and an end to zero COVID. And researchers say the Chinese government is even trying to bury information about the protests from social media users abroad search on Twitter in Chinese characters for cities that had protests, and you get this, a flood of spam and porn advertisements. The spam campaign, researchers say, appears to be the work of Chinese authorities. Twitter did not respond to a request for comment. Are you worried about your own safety? Of course I'm very worried. I get a lot of anonymous harassment saying, I know who you are, where you live, and I will kill you. (laughs) His parents frequently call him in fear, he says, and the Chinese authorities have been harassing them, too, making midnight visits to their home in China. What price do you think you have to pay for the work that you do? This account is more important than my life. I will not shut it down. I've arranged for someone else to take over if something bad happens to me. I'm mentally prepared, even if authorities won't let me see my parents again. Authorities in China try to keep the country in a parallel universe, but Li is playing a pivotal role in breaking that bubble. Li spends hours a day on the account, only taking breaks to feed his cat, and barely slept during the peak of protests, as he sorted and verified the endless stream of video submissions, each one urgent and historic. He's doing the work that he hopes one day Chinese journalists and Chinese citizens from within China will be able to do without fear. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing.
0: Brave. Okay, let's talk data. Prices paid to producers in the United States rose less quickly last month. A modestly hopeful sign for consumers. The November producer price index, though, was up 7.4% year over year. That's down from an 8% gain in October. It is a critical report before central bankers meet next week to agree on their last interest rate hike of the year. CNN's Paula Monica joins me now. The problem is, Paul, and you said it on Twitter, this was hot, 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 I think is how you described it. Hotter than expected, certainly, and that's the last thing, I think, Consumers, investors, nor the Fed wanted to see at this point in time. Yeah, exactly.
4: Yeah. Sorry to go all Buster Poindexter on you there, but uh, you know, hey, child of the I 80s, like what can I do? But uh <laughs> yes, the the issue is that even though, as you pointed out, Julie, a 7.4% increase over the past 12 months, that's a sigh of relief when we were, you know, having eight percent in October. However, economists were expecting the drop to be even steeper. The estimates were for a 7.2% increase year over year, so slightly higher than that. And I think the reason why futures then turned around, we were looking at a higher open, now slightly lower, is because, again, it's going to raise questions about what the Fed does next week. Everyone's hoping for the pivot, just a half point rate increase instead of a fifth straight three quarters of a percentage point increase. Odds are still in favor of just a 50 basis point hike next week. But is Jerome Powell going to sound more hawkish again on the media call? That, I think, is going to be something that a lot of investors are going to be looking very closely at. And, of course, we get CPI numbers on Tuesday, one day before the Fed announcement.
0: Yeah, we were talking earlier this week that it's um, just a deeply uncertain time. And you, and you feel that when you look at some of the short-term price action in the markets, good data uh, impacts stocks because there's a fear that the Fed's going to have to do more in terms of, of rate hikes and perhaps hang on in there for longer. Bad data suggests perhaps that they've already done too much and that the recessionary risks are rising. Um, it feels pretty sclerotic at this moment. And unfortunately, it's just a case of really waiting and seeing and, and watching data like this to understand or try
4: to. Yeah, I think the biggest problem right now facing the markets and, of course, facing Jerome Powell and the rest of the Fed is how do they manage this economy? They want inflation pressures to come down and they know the Fed that is that by doing so, you're probably going to create some dislocation in the job market. The unemployment rate will likely spike maybe not dramatically, but rise from these near half century low levels. As a result of doing that, you raise the odds of a recession. The Fed really would love to stick this soft or softish, as Jerome Powell's referred to it, landing, but it's a delicate balance. And I don't think many on Wall Street are confident that the Fed can really pull it off. And then the risk becomes, does the Fed create a recession that is the last thing consumers need right now to go from prices are really slamming shut you know, consumer demand to a full blown recession? I mean, we're already seeing what's happening to the housing market as a result of higher interest rates and higher mortgage rates. I don't think the Fed wants that to be something that's a ripple effect for the entire economy.
0: Yeah. And to your point, the way that you calibrate finding that balance, perhaps, is you do smaller incremental hikes rather than the big ones. And you see what the impact is as they feed into the economy. We shall see. Paula Monica. Thank you for that. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. In a world of uncertainty over global recessionary risks, inflation, rising interest rates, currency pressures and the pandemic-tied hangover of high government spending. Investors have been left hunting for a lost arc of opportunities while hoping to avoid the odd temple of doom. And that's where emerging markets perhaps play a role. My next guest picked these. And as you can see, it's a very diverse bunch, but some have clearly shown resilience amid all the broader challenges. Mark Mobius calls himself the Indiana Jones of emerging markets investing. He rated his knowledge to draw up a map of those investing picks. He's pointed to Taiwan, India, Vietnam, Turkey, South Africa, and Brazil. Taiwan. In fact, caught my eye in particular. Its dominance in global chip making is a known fact, but of course the geopolitics, as we often discuss on this show, more precarious. Much to discuss with the founding partner of Mobius Capital Partners. He's also the author of The Inflation Myth and the Wonderful World of Deflation. Mark Mobius joins us now. Mark, fantastic to have you. Welcome to First Move. Um, We were just discussing before the break deep short-term uncertainty, the Fed path, inflation, the strength of the US dollar, all of these important inputs when you're investing in emerging markets in particular. What do you think of the world? What's your view at this moment?
7: Well, in this stage of the game, of course, we're in a crisis as regards to uh, the inflationary situation in America. And of course, where America goes, the world follows. I mean, if the US Fed raises interest rates, then everybody else has to follow, unless they want their currencies to go uh, down dramatically. Uh, but the interesting thing that is in some of these emerging markets where you've seen an incredible devaluation of currencies, it's provided an opportunity for people like us because we were able to go into some of these countries like Turkey, where you've had an incredible devaluation of the Turkish lira, 80% plus against the dollar. But where ex- exporters, people who do uh, exports are in Turkish lira and their income is in dollars. But generally speaking, I think we can expect uh, the Fed to have higher interest rates if the CPI continues to be at this level. Because their playbook says, look, if you want to kill inflation, you've got to have interest rates higher than the CPI. CPI now is what, 7%? That means you've got to have 8% interest rates. So uh, I think people are, uh, are not looking at the real Uh, situation and taking it seriously.
0: You know, that's fascinating. There are so many important points in there. The fact that we've seen US dollar strength, which has meant currency depreciation in a lot of these markets, it means perhaps the assets in these markets are cheaper. But to your point, and just to emphasize that so my viewers understand, what you're saying is if they're earning in foreign currency, but they're buying products, for example, in their domestic currency, then they're benefiting from the relative strength, perhaps, of of the U.S. dollar at this moment. Key to that continuation, of course, is what we see for the U.S. dollar into 2023. What do you expect there? And of course, that's all tied to, to, as you were saying, what the Federal Reserve ends up doing.
7: I think that, again, depending on how high interest rates in America go, because if the Fed raises rates more, there'll be attraction for people to hold dollars. Mm. But generally speaking, I think the dollar, if you look at the dollar index, it's already weakened against uh, other currencies around the world. So I think we've had our run. Um, usually markets run ahead of what is expected uh, coming in the next six months. So I think a lot of these emerging market currencies have begun to stabilize. And in fact, some of them have actually got stronger. But I think the key point going forward is what's going to happen in the crypto world. There's a lot of central banks, in fact, probably all, have underestimated the impact of crypto currencies on the lower income people around the world. A lot of people have been putting money into these crypto funds and crypto exchanges because they've been promised 5% interest or even higher. Uh, Now, of course, some of these companies are going bust so they can't pay back the money and. Course the five percent is out the window. But the important thing is that if the Fed raises rates more, then the attraction of these high interest rates offered by the crypto people will not be so attractive.
0: Okay, so talk about that, because I did mention in the introduction to you earlier on in the show about your your concerns about digital assets. Like Bitcoin, for example, I, I think Jamie Diamond said investing in at least the digital asset part, not the underlying technology, was like owning pet rocks, he said this week. Um, what do you make, what do you make of that comment? Um, I'm driving the crypto viewers here wild. Um, what do you make of, um, of that comment? And just explain what you were saying because I agree with you on the importance perhaps of monetary policy for, for crypto assets too.
7: Well, I think his point was very well taken. I I know Warren Buffett has said it's like rat poison. And when people ask me about crypto, I always say I don't like to talk about religion in public. Because at the end of the day, it's a faith. Uh, And there's a whole generation of young people who believe uh, what they see on the Internet and what they see on their cell phones. So uh, I think there's a lot of people who are going to be sadly disappointed. Uh, Because even if you look at the background, the blockchain uh, theory, uh, that has lots of faults. I mean, the idea that blockchain cannot be hacked uh, just is not true. It has been. So uh, the foundation of the whole crypto world is very. We're
0: just having a few reception issues, Mark. So. I hope you can, um, you can still hear me too. Um, there will be people yelling at the television at, at this point, I can but I can, I can tell you're a deep sceptic. So um, I, I, I think the point also that you're making is perhaps, and I've seen you make it before, that limited supply and scarcity, which admittedly is one of the key proponents of those that invest in, in digital assets like Bitcoin, you're saying, look, that's, that's simply not a reason. It's just not a reason. It's not an investment reason or justification.
7: Exactly exactly you're depending on someone else coming along to pay more than what you bought the crypto coin at and of course once these people begin to disappear as a result of FTX and all these other disasters you know there's a ripple effect around the world with these crypto assets so that's the reason why i said you no know, crypto could go to 10,000 uh, a bitcoin could go to 10,000 or even below because there's nothing really holding it up other than people's faith in the coin.
0: Yeah, your point about religion, I think at this point, um, it, well made to tie those so, threads together. I have to talk to you about Taiwan because I also um, talked about that in, in the introduction as well. I've seen you make comments about China and uh, sort of the valuation, uh, relative valuation opportunities here, but also that you're already an, an investor in Taiwan. Um, in the short term, I think a lot of people can see, even from the basis of the, uh, the chip making prowess that Taiwan has and other things going on in the country that that make it an investment opportunity at this moment. But longer term, the geopolitics, Mark, that the risk reward here for now is is calculated. How concerned are you about perhaps the future?
7: Uh, That's a good point. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm worried about China, of investing in China. We have a little bit in Hong Kong, but we haven't put anything in China because if China decides to attack Taiwan, then we'll have a situation like we had with Russia, where the U.S. will impose an embargo. And suddenly all the assets that you have in China are out the window. They're going to be locked up. You won't have access to them. So that's one thing that worries me. So we decided Taiwan is the place to be uh, for a number of reasons. It's a great country, great entrepreneurial people. You have the best of the Chinese there in the sense that it's an open society they're very creative and they of course they're leader in the uh, tech field particularly in uh, chips and micro uh, chips so uh, but what we've been doing is saying okay uh, let's be careful and invest in those companies that are doing the software for chips mm. because it's really a people business and these people can be flown out and flown to california or anywhere else in the world if something happens so that's sort of a uh, backup but at the end of the day, uh, Taiwan is the place to be uh, when we want to get the access to uh, Chinese uh, ideas and Chinese creativity.
0: And for the investors that are, are watching this, and it's not just about the short term, clearly, but if you had to choose a market beyond Taiwan, and I know you've got a number on the list that you like for, for, as an outperformer in 2023, despite all the challenges, wh- where would you go? What would you suggest to people to look at?
7: India, 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 India. India is going great <laughs> guns. They're one of the fastest growing countries in the world today. And uh, well, you just have to look around America and see who's heading up some of the best companies, particularly in the tech field. You see a lot of Indians. So uh, they've got an incredible brain power. And more importantly, the new government, the Modi government, is digitizing the economy. And uh, really embarking on a a very intense technology push. As you know, India now exports a tremendous amount of software around the world. Now I think they're going to go into hardware. Uh, They'll begin to replace some of the manufacturing in China. As you know, uh, Apple has already moved into India in a small way. And I think that's going to accelerate going forward. So India is really the place to be. And of course, not necessarily just in tech, but in anything. It's a billion people. They're growing. They're one of the fastest growing countries in the world today and they're going to continue to grow. So I think the long-term future for India looks terrific.
0: Yeah, I think when we're talking about Asia, it's sort of a lazy thing to always assume that we're talking about China and um, one should not forget the the size, the power, the breadth um, and the innovation taking place in, in somewhere like India as well. Mark? Fantastic to have you on the show. Please come back and talk to us soon. Mark Mobius there of Mobius Capital Partners. Great to chat to you. Okay, coming up. The World Cup quarterfinals kick off in just around 30 minutes' time. We'll take you to the Qatar for the preview right after this. Welcome back to First Move, and on Wall Street, we're simply having a volatile Christmas time. U.S. stocks lower in early trade after that worse than expected read on prices at the factory gate. Not encouraging news for the inflation-fighting Fed, as we've discussed. December, though, has been a rough period so far for the Bulls. The Dow on track for one of its worst-performing weeks, in fact, since the months of summer. No time for investors to take their eyes off the ball today, except, of course, when they're eyeing the football. The World Cup down to the final eight. And if you're nervous about the upcoming games, well, of course, I can relate. But why wait for kickoff? Here are today's winners of... Yes, you guessed it, the Chatley Cup. Our special look at how the stock markets of the quarterfinal now titans stack up in the match between the Netherlands and Argentina. Actually, it's Argentina easily taking the cup. The Argentina Mervel has soared some 100% this year. Yes, you heard me right. Thanks. I think in part to that emergency IMF bailout deal earlier this year. No Dutch treat for the Netherlands. Stocks down some 9% this year. In today's other battle between Brazil and Croatia, the Bovespa clearly the victor, up around 3% since January. Croatia down over 7%, as you can see. Tomorrow's matchups now we're talking include Morocco and Portugal. Portugal on top here, a 3% rise versus a 15% Moroccan stock market slump and, of course, the heavyweight title, she says, between England and France. England scoring goals here, woohoo, as they will on Saturday, of course, she says. The FTSE up 1% year-to-date, easily beating the Cat Caron down almost 7%. Amanda Davis joins us now from Doha. Let's hope those stock markets are indicators of the results. Again, I shouldn't say that, but I did. Tell me what's coming up today, Amanda. It's the... Um, South Americans versus the Europeans in the matches today. Mm -hmm.
6: Yeah, Julia, I wish I was uh, as full of confidence as you are. I have to say, I'm playing it down. (laughs) As things stand. Very much playing it down. I've been here before. Um, But no, today, very much building up. uh, The name on everybody's lips, Lionel Messi as Argentina prepared to take on the Netherlands. Uh, The last time these two sides met at a World Cup in Brazil in 2014. And it was Argentina who took it, broke the Dutch hearts on penalties in the semi-final and that has led the Dutch coach Louis van Haal back at his third stint in charge of this team to say he and his side very much have a score to settle because looking ahead to that game we are basically expecting to see either the end of van Haal's career on the touchline as a manager 71 years old such a long storied uh, history uh, as a manager in this game, or are we going to be bidding farewell to Lionel Messi? Perhaps the last time we see him in an Argentinian shirt. I have to say, the majority of the fans here in the souk this evening—they are supporting Argentina, with the Messi name proudly emblazoned on their backs. Uh, before that one, though, uh, we are gearing up for Brazil against Croatia, a Brazilian side who have been supreme in their last couple of games, uh, a that the Croatian coach, Zaklo Dalic, is describing as terrifying. They have so many goal-scoring threads across the board. Neymar, of course, knows that one more goal will see him tie that 77 record goals for Brazil. Of the three-time World Cup winner, Pele, Pelé, all the thoughts with him still in hospital in Brazil. He has been sending those messages to this Brazilian side from his hospital bed via social media and the team very much buoyed by the fact they expect him to be watching on once again.
0: Uh, Amanda, I've just been told no time for a follow, so clearly I'm going to not listen to that advice, but we have to be really quick. (laughs) England, Morocco, can they do it?
6: Well, Morocco, everybody's favourite. Newest team, aren't they? They've received the phone (laughs) calls from the king and they're taking on a Portuguese side uh, with some disruption in the camp, if things are to be believed in terms of Cristiano Ronaldo. They have the whole Arab world uh, behind them. As for England uh, against France, Kyle Walker says uh, it's not just about Kylian Mbappe. He's not going to be rolling out the red carpet. England confidence, I think, of making it to the semi-final for a third major tournament.
0: Good luck to all the teams. Just a little bit more luck to England and Morocco in an unbiased way. Amanda, great to have you with us. of your enthusiasm, Julia. Thank you. All right, it's time to come. On First Move, we speak to Chelsea Clinton and the director of the Global Fund, Peter Sands, about the fund's record investment in tackling some of the world's toughest healthcare issues and how their work has already saved 50 million lives. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The fight to prevent infectious diseases like AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria has been going on for decades. Together, these diseases still result in nearly 3 million deaths every year. Now, for the past 20 years, the Global Fund has been at the front lines of the fight to eradicate them, raising money to help strengthen and support healthcare systems around the world. Since its launch, the Global Fund has invested more than $55 billion and saving 50 million lives in the process and cut the combined death rate from the three diseases by more than half. The organization also works with a number of crucial partners, including the Clinton Health Access Initiative, which has helped scale and raise awareness of health inequity in some of the poorest nations of the world. The two organizations together have also been integral players in lowering the cost to treat diseases like HIV. For example, at the beginning of this century, treating HIV cost over $10,000 per person per year. Today, treatment costs just under $50. Last month, the Global Fund and Partners announced it raised an astonishing $15.7 billion in its latest round of funding for the work to come over the next three years. Here to discuss is Chelsea Clinton, Vice Chair of the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Health Access Initiative, and Peter Sands, the Executive Director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria. Chelsea, Peter, fantastic to have you on the show. And I think all I can say at this moment to begin is, wow. Actually, what an incredible outcome and, and impact. And I think both you and your organizations are trailblazers for what can be done to tackle these huge healthcare challenges. Um, Peter, I want to begin with you. It's clearly not the easiest time to be raising money, but you did it. Um, just frame the challenge for us and, and who rose to meet it?
7: Well,
5: this was, Julia, a uh, coaster year. Um, for a difficult year for raising this kind of scale of money. But I actually think it's testimony to how much there, for all the different pressures, there still is a spirit of global solidarity, of people willing to step up to save the lives, protect the communities, some of the poorest and most marginalised communities in the world this year we raised 15.7 billion dollars as you said and we saw a number of countries really really step up so the united states took the lead both in hosting the replenishment but in increasing its pledge by 30 percent but so too did canada japan the european commission germany uh korea increased by 300 percent so we had a range of major donors really increased their contributions. And it wasn't just governments. We also saw increased contributions from our private sector supporters.
0: Chelsea, and there's two things for me where, where you're involved. I heard you wrote your thesis at university on the uh, global fund. so. It must be an incredible feeling, I think, to be to be working with them and, and achieving what you are now for, for health and equality. Um, but it's also about continuing the work that, that your father began after he left the White House and recognized that, at least in his part, he didn't feel like he'd done enough and more needs to be done for things like HIV. Just, just explain that and, and the work that you've been doing on this too. Well, thank you so much, Julia. Yes, you know, as my father has said
3: uh, repeatedly, he thought... of one of the areas where he hadn't done enough where he had actually failed um, to lead is in the fight against hiv and aids uh, globally um, and also to fight kind of all of the related health inequities that surround hiv and aids patients and people living with the disease uh, across the world including here in the united states and so i am incredibly Uh, proud of him that he didn't sort of wallow in that guilt. He instead used it as a catalyst to think about kind of what could he do with his capacious brain and heart and networks um, and leverage and platform to galvanize action um, to really make a positive difference in, in saving lives. And so more than 20 years ago, the Clinton foundation started the Clinton health access initiative um, to focus on uh, trying to change the, Uh, market dynamics that you talked about in your introduction to shift what had been a high-price, low-volume dynamic in the market for antiretrovirals to help treat um, HIV, to shift it to a high-volume, low-price dynamic. Um, He believed it could be done, and kind of by 2004, so within just a couple of years of kind of the launch of both the Global Fund and the Clinton Foundation's HIV program, you know, that had really started to happen. And so the, the price drops were, were pretty substantial um, and were substantial, not just kind of in, in one um, one medicine, but in almost, in almost two dozen to help treat adults and children and adults who had kind of co-infections. And that really set the kind of parameters and the kind of protocols for how we've then thought about our work over the next 20 years to try to bring together similar to what Peter does at the Global Fund, kind of different partners from from government, from the not-for-profit sector, from the private sector, who have a shared kind of purpose and a big ambition um, to help save and protect lives. And so now we've helped negotiate well north of 100 different agreements on everything from um, pediatric HIV medicines to kind of uh, hepatitis, tuberculosis, to malaria, Mm -hmm. for maternal and child health, for child nutrition, and, and so much more.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I think at the core of, of, in many ways, of what you're both saying is that you've found a way to be incredibly efficient about pulling the private sector together, the public sector together, working on these partnerships and and ultimately getting the money, the research, the information, the intellectual property where it needs to go in order to make dramatic change over the shortest period of time. Um, Peter, just explain to me if you can give me an example of, of how this money's utilized and i'm sure as well particularly in this day and age the process that goes through vetting that but also vetting where the money comes from too because i know for for all donors out there and from anybody who gives money on a small or a large scale ensuring that the money goes where it's intended is also vital for for that decision to hand it over
5: well i just arrived back from malawi this morning um and uh, Malawi is a really good example of both the scale of the impact and the nature of the challenges going forward. And and to frame the scale of the impact, when the Global Fund was founded 20 years ago, life expectancy in Malawi was 46 years. That's how long people could expect to live for. Roll on the clock, 20 years, life expectancy is 65 years in Malawi. So. A 19-year increase in actually 19 years. And that isn't just an enormous amount of lives that's been saved, but it also transforms the nature of society. People have grandparents. It makes sense to go to university because you've got enough left of your life to actually earn the rewards of going and having further education. But, but the work isn't finished, and that's why we continue to invest in places like Malawi. It's still the case that too many, particularly adolescent girls and young women, are getting infected by HIV. It's still the case that there are children dying of malaria. And in the poorest communities, you still see TB killing people. People don't perhaps realize it, but TB, tuberculosis, will kill more people in poor countries this year than COVID does. Wow. It's the biggest infectious disease killer in the poorest countries in the world. Now, the way we work is we don't sit in Geneva and tell people what they should be doing. What we do is we allocate resources to countries and then the countries themselves with the input of partners, including WHO, including Chai, for example, particularly on technical assistance and access to cost-effective products working with partners the countries determine the priorities and how they want to go about tackling these diseases and we work hand in hand with them to make that happen and the great thing is it does work Chelsea was just talking then about um hiv hiv aids has been an extraordinary story of how to respond to a pandemic far too many people died absolutely But in the countries in which the Global Fund invests, some we invest in about 120 countries, Mm. there's been a 70% reduction in age-related deaths since 2002 and a 54% reduction in infections. So we can beat these diseases, but it does require, it does require a partnership approach. You need governments, you need communities, you need the private sector, you need foundations, um, you need NGOs like, uh, like Chai. So if we all get come at this together, we can actually beat these diseases and save a, just a staggering number of lives.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, the, it's your point. I mean, that's a staggering statistic that tuberculosis will kill more people than COVID. And yet for all the the focus that we've placed on COVID quite rightly over the past couple of years, but we have to keep these other diseases front and center of our conversations and and understand that the work needs to continue and the money needs to be raised. Chelsea, I have around um, 90 seconds left. I want to give you the final word for, for what the plan is, as you've said, enormous change over the last 20 years, enormous progress, but much more work does need to be done. What are you going to be doing over the next three years? You know, well,
3: I think, it's so important to recognize that uh, COVID also wasn't the only story of the last few years when you think about, (laughs) you know, as as Peter, you know, was uh, talking about tuberculosis, I also was thinking about the fact that we did lose ground, painfully lost ground against HIV and AIDS over the last few years as people weren't able to have uh, access to early detection, to early treatment, to kind of prevention to keep themselves and their families safe. And so you know, the the story to me is that we know progress is possible. We also can never um, stop kind of fighting HIV/AIDS, uh, tuberculosis, malaria, some diseases that have been around for decades, some that have been around for you know hundreds of thousands, uh, even millions of years,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, because that's in all of our interest. It's in not only the interest of everyone that Peter was just speaking about, whom he had seen, you know, in Malawi, but we know certainly from the last few years that our health is all interconnected, and so we have to in my mind, you know, recommit kind of more ferociously than ever to help kind of protect um, protect people from these infectious diseases um, anywhere and everywhere with a disproportionate focus on the most vulnerable and the most marginalized. Um, that's, that's morally the right thing to do, but it's also kind of uh, not only for solidarity, but really to help protect our, our shared, shared global public health and so we're going to just keep doing all that we have done to continue to focus on hiv and aids while also be responsive to new challenges um, including covid um, and whatever else
0: may inevitably come next yeah i think if we didn't learn in the last two to three years that that, that anything like this is a global challenge and illness in one part of the world impacts everyone then um, perhaps we never will Congratulations for the fundraise. Thank you both for all the work that you're doing and um, we will continue the conversation and track your progress. Thank you, Chelsea Clinton and Peter Sands. Thank you. Welcome back to The First Move. And finally, who would you pick to go with you on a trip to the moon? Well, Japanese billionaire Yusaku Maezawa, who's already spent time on the International Space Station, has bought his ticket for the SpaceX maiden voyage. And he won't be lonely. He's invited eight celebrities and artists to join him. They include a K-pop star and a friend of First Move too, superstar DG Steve Aoki. There are a few small wrinkles to iron out first. Their spaceship is still in development, but it is hoped it could fly as early as next year. They're still building the rocket. I'll nominate myself for the next trip. Uh, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at G CNN. As always, Connect the World is up next. Have a good weekend.
7: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyoncé and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.